This morning I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our nine-part sermon series entitled The Supremacy of Christ. Paul has made much to do about Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus, the Father has qualified us. He has rescued us from darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of light. He has redeemed us by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were made, visible, invisible, seen and unseen. Jesus holds all things together. He is the head of the body, which is the church. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. And Jesus provides the one thing that we desperately need. For Christianity gives us one thing. It's the one thing that we need, and that one thing is Christ. Jesus took our sins to the cross. God the Father nailed them to the tree. And God in Jesus Christ forgave us all of our sins. Oh, Jesus is much to make about our salvation. We cannot think of him too much. We can't speak of him too frequently. We cannot lift him too high. He is the treasure of heaven. And that gift of heaven has been given unto us and so we value Jesus, we treasure Jesus, we, we are Jesus people. It's with all that in mind that we turn our attention to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I'll begin in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. I'll conclude at verse 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what has been seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. Because they are based on human commands and teaching, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Heavenly Father, we pray that this sermon will be found not only on the lips of this preacher, but also on the ears of the hearer. So, O oh Lord, today, help me to preach. Think with my mind and speak with my lips. Overtake my body and help me to proclaim your good news. Commandeer my words and may they be words from heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. In these eight verses, you and I find three warnings. The first warning is beware of legalism, verses 16 and 17. Secondly, we are to beware of mysticism, verses 18 and 19. And third and finally, we are to beware of self-denial, verses 20 to 23. The Apostle Paul, first and foremost, tells the congregation, beware of legalism. Do not let anyone judge you because of what you eat or drink 
or because of your religious activities and the festivals that you keep. Now, at first reading of that verse, it would sound like a verse that our culture would adore because Paul simply says, don't judge me. Don't judge me for what I eat or drink, for what I do, for the things that I attend, for the festivals that I go. Don't judge me, Paul writes. Now, at first, we think to ourselves, this is something that our culture quickly tells us because uh, behind this statement of don't judge me usually is a, uh, a ban of accountability. Because I don't want you to hold me accountable, don't judge me. Also behind it is a uh, abdication of, of how we live a, a holy life. Don't, don't question what I do. Uh, don't call into analysis what I say. Just, just don't judge me. And so quickly that phrase is spoken by many in our culture in the hopes of silencing any critic. But the Bible, it never bans accountability. It never causes Christians to stop being fruit inspectors. It never tells us to, to, to stop analyzing uh, how we live and how others live for the sake of Christ. So this call of do not judge me is not a ban of accountability. No, we are our brother's keeper, amen? Uh, we are people that are to look out for one another, and when somebody sins, we restore him or her gently. We are called to be salt and light, and sometimes salt stings, doesn't it, in an open wound? Sometimes light, as it dispels darkness, people who crave the darkness would rather stay in darkness than have light shed on it. And so uh, some people say, just don't judge me because they don't want any accountability. Paul is not telling the church, you are above accountability. He is not saying that somehow you're beyond uh, the evaluation of your actions. No, what he's saying when he says, don't let anyone judge you, don't let anybody come into the church with a disposition that has a sense of spiritual superiority looking down upon you because you lack observable obedience to a list of man-made rules of do's and don'ts. Now that's a mouthful, but that's exactly what the Gnostics were doing. The Gnostics, these heretics, they were coming into the church and they were saying, listen, if you want to be super spiritual, you need something beyond Jesus. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. So you need something more than Jesus in order for you to be spiritual. In order for you to really be a super saint, you've got to go back to the Old Testament law, to all of its rules and regulations, its dietary restrictions. There are some foods and drinks you are to abstain from. There are some religious holidays that you must attend. If you don't do these things, then you will not be accepted in God's sight. Now, Paul comes and he tells the church, listen, uh, don't, don't let anybody judge you in that fashion. I ironically, uh, he does not say um, the law doesn't matter. He doesn't say what you eat and drink is irrelevant. He doesn't say that what you put on your calendar, the religious activities that you do, well, they're insignificant. No, he doesn't say any of that because Paul knows there's a place for the law even in the life of the believer. And Paul knows that what we eat and drink, it is important, not only just for physical health, but also for the testimony as we bear witness to Christ in a watching world. And Paul also understands the need for God's people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So Paul does not say, forget about the law. He does not say what you eat and drink, who cares? And he also doesn't say about religious festivals and religious meetings and gathering worship services. Oh, come and go if you please. It really doesn't matter. What he does say is that all these things are shadows that point to the reality which is found in Jesus Christ. 
that all these things have their place. When it comes to the law, the apostle will say in Romans chapter 6 that we are no longer under law, we are now under grace. To say that you and I live under grace does not mean that we are lawless. No, we obey the law of God not out of legalism but out of love. Because Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at every point. And so our obedience to Christ is obedience to the law, and we do that not to have some super spirituality, but we do it simply out of our love for God. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy that the law is good, that the law actually is good if it is properly followed and administered. So Paul is telling Timothy in his first letter, hey, listen, the law has its place, but it's never given as a means of salvation. It only reveals your need for salvation. The law just reveals sin. It has no power to remove sin. The law just itemizes consequences. It has no way of, of removing those consequences. I've long been told that the law of God is like a mirror. You and I look at that mirror. It reveals the dirt on our face, but that mirror has no power, no capacity to actually remove the dirt from our face. So the law has its place, but we do not follow it in the sense of legalism so that we can be super saved. No, we follow Christ who is the fulfillment of the law because the law is a shadow that points to Jesus. He also says that food and drink, they're shadows. They're shadows that point to the sufficiency and the necessity of Jesus Christ. Now, should you and I be careful what we eat and drink? Absolutely, because food has much to do with our physical health. But food has little, if anything, to do with our holiness. We know people who eat well and they are scallywags, right? I mean, because you eat well, that's no guarantee that you're holy. Because you eat well, it might mean that you are a little bit more healthy, but it has nothing to do with your holiness. But the food that we eat, the beverages that we drink, not only is it about our own physical health, but it's also about the testimony to others. In fact, Paul is not contradicting what he will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols. If this prompts you to sin, Paul says, I'll never eat meat sacrifice to idols again. But the reality is the food, there's nothing wrong with it. To abstain from it does mean no good. To eat it does mean nothing better. So the food is nothing in and of itself. Jesus said in the gospel, that what makes you unclean is not what goes in your mouth because it goes in your mouth and into your stomach, not your heart. It goes into your stomach and out your body. It's what overflows out of your heart. That's what makes you unclean. It's the adultery, the greed, the lust, the envy. Those things flow from the heart. So the food that we eat, it ought to be a shadow, a shadow that points us to the necessity of Jesus. Jesus said that whoever believes in him, whoever comes to him, will never thirst or hunger anymore. So literally, when you spread peanut butter on your Wonder Bread, it ought to remind you that Jesus is the bread of life. When you squeeze honey uh, onto your biscuit, it ought to remind you that Jesus is sweeter than honey straight out of the comb. Whenever you sit down for a meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, it ought to remind you that Jesus is the one that provides all your daily food. When you have coffee in the morning, hot chocolate in the evening, it ought to remind you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Everything that we eat, every beverage that we drink, it ought to point us to Jesus because all of this is a shadow of the reality that is in Christ. Uh, Paul goes on to say that not only is it about the law and the food and the drink, but, but also the religious holidays, the new moon festivals, the Sabbath celebrations. 
Now listen, what Paul is saying is that when you look at your calendar, your calendar ought to point you to the necessity of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Lord of all time and he's Lord all the time. So everything you put on your calendar, every worship service you go to, it doesn't make you saved. But if you are saved, why wouldn't you want to show up? Let me make no apologies about it. When you organize your weekly activities, your weekly activities need to begin here in the house of God. Here on the first day of the week. Now why do we do that? It's not a basis of salvation. It's simply because we need to be reminded that the tomb is empty. We meet early on Sunday morning. Why? Because the ladies went to the tomb early on Easter Sunday morning. They asked themselves the question, who will roll away the stone for us? When they got there, an angel rolled it away, sat on top of it and said, ladies, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Go and tell his disciples. Every time we gather on the first day of the week, Easter Sunday morning, because Easter happened happens every seven days, right? Easter happens every Sunday. We come in and we see that the tomb is still empty and we go and we tell. That's the message of every Sunday. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. So the message of Easter is repeated on a regular basis every seven days. And then beyond that, our high holidays, our holy days, would include Christmas and Easter. Why do we gather for worship at Christmas and Easter? To remind us, because it's a shadow of the reality of Christ, to remind us that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is a savior with skin on. When we gather at Christmas, when we peer into the manger, we see the hope of salvation staring back at us through tiny eyes and tiny hands and tiny feet. For that is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We gather on Easter Sunday morning because we remember that on that faithful Friday, Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He died a criminal's cross, not for his sins, but for your sins. He was placed in your grave. On the third day, he was raised to everlasting life. We gather on Sunday, we gather at Christmas, we gather at Easter, for they are shadows of the reality that we find in Jesus Christ. Every time you go on a revival, every time you attend a retreat, every time you calendar a high mountaintop experience, why do you go there and why do you do it? Because it reminds you of the necessity of Jesus. He came to give life more abundant and free. Everything you put on your calendar is a shadow that points to the reality of Jesus. The biggest block of time that we give ourselves to every week is work. And that's good. America needs to hear this, by the way. Work is good. It's a good thing to work. Why? Because it's a shadow of the reality of Christ. Jesus Christ worked. For six days, he made the heavens and the earth. And the seventh day, God Almighty rested. Even when you go to the doctor and you calendar that event, when you go see that doctor, when you see that physician, it reminds you of your mortality, does it not? It reminds you that you ain't getting younger and you are getting older and things are aching, cracking and popping. And so you go to the doctor and he or she reminds you of the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are just a shadow. The going to the doctor is just a shadow of the reality of your necessity of Jesus. Everything you put on the calendar, it ought to point you to Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, these things are not bad things. It's not bad to obey the law. It's not bad to be careful what you eat and drink, not only for personal health, but also for your testimony before a watching world. It's not bad to 
calendar uh, certain events and, and really stuff your calendar with activities of religious nature, religious activity. It's not bad to do those things. Those aren't bad things, Paul says. They're just not saving things. Those things don't save you. The Gnostics were coming in and they were saying, listen, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be a super saint, you've got to have Jesus plus something. That's why we've said for several weeks now, Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. Beware of legalism. We follow the Lord not out of legalism, but out of love. Paul says, secondly, I want you to beware of mysticism. Don't let anyone, Paul writes, who delights in false humility and the worship of angels attempt to disqualify you from the prize. Now, once again, that's a mouthful. What does Paul mean? Well, Paul clearly is making a connection between what the Gnostics were trying to do and what he had already written. For the Gnostics were trying to disqualify the Colossians from real salvation. That word disqualify, it would have reminded in the ears of the hearers, hey, listen, we've heard that word, the opposite of that word already before in chapter 1, verse 12. For the Father has qualified you. He has made you fit for his kingdom. And what he has qualified you for, don't let anybody come in and try to disqualify you from it. If God qualifies you for it, nobody can disqualify you from it. So do not let them disqualify. How are they trying to disqualify? Well, they were coming in, the Gnostics were, they were saying, hey, listen, if you want to be a super saint, I mean, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to know God, you got to know Jesus plus, you've got to know other emanations, other teachings, other sparks. They would talk about other angels, other messengers from heaven, and they would say in elaborate ways, let me tell you about the conversation I had with an angel. Let me tell you about that conversation. Let me tell you the sacred secret that God told me by way of that angel. Now, he didn't tell Jesus, and Jesus didn't tell us, and it's not found in the Old Testament. But let me tell you something that is extra biblical. Let me tell you something that God has told me through an angel, a messenger. And, and, and you ought to have these things, too. Because if you don't have conversations with angels, then somehow your faith is deficient. Is your faith deficient? Have you never had a conversation with an angel? Has God never given you a mighty mystery of the cosmos? Oh, my friend, then I've got a faith that you need. I've got a faith that I can give to you. I can teach you how to do this. And so there was a great deal of mysticism towards trying to teach them to have these great emanations, these great teachings, these great conversations. There was false humility, Paul says. They weren't really humble about it. They were being quite arrogant about it. I am a super saint, they would say, and you need to be like me, and I can teach you how to have these conversations. And Paul goes on to say that they were uh, worshiping the angels. They weren't worshiping Jesus. No, they were worshiping the angels that they supposedly had these elaborate conversations with that revealed great sacred secrets of the cosmos, the great uh, mystery of the universe. Once again, the author uh, is writing this in such a way that the reader understands. Now, wait a minute. Paul's already talked about the greatest mystery in the cosmos. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can't get no better than that. I mean, Christ in you, Christ in me, as sinful as we are. Yes, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That's the basis of salvation. Salvation is found and bound in the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes up residence inside of you, beloved. 
the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is uh, telling the church, hey, listen, don't let them come in and try to disqualify you. Don't let them attempt to try to tell you some mystical art that, that they have and you don't, and that because you don't have it, your faith is deficient, and, um, and, and, you, and you need it. Now, let's just be honest. At some level, every believer I know wants a vibrant, growing, dare I say, mystical relationship with Jesus. I mean, we want to know him personally, don't we? We want to understand him deeply, don't we? We want to receive the word of God that's been given to us in written form. We want to understand what that word says. We want the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scripture so that we know truth, so we can be planted deeply in doctrine and not blown away by all kinds of doctrine that comes like a tumbleweed. No, we want to know God. We want something powerful. We want uh, something mysterious about it. There's something about mystery that's good. So I want you to hear that. There's something about mysticism that is good. But Paul is saying um, you got to have it in its proper place. It's not the basis of salvation. It's not the basis of somehow giving you insider knowledge, super spirituality that only God gives to you but not to others. I'll give you a couple of stories just from my own life experience, and maybe it'll help it explain it a little bit better. I remember that when some people think about uh, mystery and mysticism, uh, people think about dreams and visions. Certainly the Gnostics were coming in saying that they had dreams and visions where angels had spoken to them and given them a word from God that was not anywhere found in the Scripture. And there's something about dreams and visions, isn't there? And certainly I do believe that God uses dreams and God uses visions. He does it in the scripture, does he not? I had a conversation about 20-some years ago with a Southern Baptist missionary who had been a long-time servant in North Africa, Middle East. He had been with the IMB, the International Mission Board. Um, he was uh, very uh, helpful. He was uh, very respected. And I remember he was from the area where I first pastored. And one day he was back on furlough. And so we were eating breakfast. I think it may have been Dairy Queen. And we were sitting in Dairy Queen. And, and I'll, never, I'll never forget the conversation. He said, Davin, I, I, I am working on a book about interviews from believers that are in the persecuted church. And I'm sitting down with them. And it's... Um, it's very confidential, but I'm sitting down with them and I'm asking them their story. And they're telling me how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the vast majority of them are coming from a Muslim background. Most, if not all of them, are illiterate. He said, so um, I'm a firm believer in the scripture. Uh, nobody has a, a greater supremacy of the scripture and the sufficiency of God's word than I do, he said. He said, but I can tell you this much. I, I could give them a Bible in their native tongue, but they can't read it. And if they have a Bible, a Christian book, in their native tongue, and it's on their person, in their belongings, and it's found by a family member, that'll be a death wish. 
In fact, that family member, if he doesn't kill them, he'll take it to the father and the father will kill them. And certainly that person will die simply because they possess a book they cannot read because they're illiterate. So how are they coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Through dreams and visions. He said, Davin, this is happening every day all over North Africa, Middle East. It's happening every day, numerous times a day. This is not an isolated event. This is a repeated event. Somebody will have a dream. And in that dream, it'll be a holy man. They later discover that holy man is Jesus. And Jesus will tell them to go to a particular village, uh, knock on a particular door, and ask to speak to a particular person. They go to that village. They knock on that door. They ask for that person. That person comes, and they engage them in conversation. And that person says, the other night, I had a dream. I had a dream that you would come and talk to me and ask me about a holy man. Is that why you're here? Yes, that's why I'm here. That was a green light for them to talk about Jesus. That person would then share the good news of Jesus Christ, and the person who first had the dream would accept and trust Jesus as Lord. Whoa. Wow. I mean, I sit there and I think to myself, that is awesome. That's not how I came to faith. I mean, I was seven years old. I was... I was kneeling beside my bed with my mother and my father beside me. We had a Bible open because my heart was open. And they read to me John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Davin, whoever means you. You can be the whoever. Do you want to trust Jesus for your salvation? And on April the 15th, 1981, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And I was saved that day. Did I have a dream? No. Did I have a vision? No. Is my path of salvation any greater than my friends and my brothers and sisters in North Africa and the Middle East? Is it any better than theirs? No. Is theirs any better than me? No. But the Gnostics were coming in saying, unless you've had a dream, you're really not saved. Unless you've had a conversation with an angel, you're really not sanctified. Unless you've been given a word from God that is special and unique to you, then you are not a super saint. And Paul says, don't let anybody come in and try to disqualify you from the faith that you have, which is rooted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as described in his sacred word. So this mysticism sometimes fleshes itself out in dreams and visions. I think that God uses dreams and visions. But that does not make a person who receives a dream or vision a better Christian than somebody who doesn't receive a dream or vision. Also, when you think about mysticism and the mystical disciplines, you think of uh, speaking in tongues, right? Um, certainly, speaking in tongues is a gift of the Spirit. It's not the only gift. It's not even a top-tiered gift. But certainly, it's a gift that the Spirit of God gives to some believers, my first encounter with this whole notion of speaking in tongues occurred when I was a young preacher. I didn't say a young pastor, I said a young preacher. I was about 17 years of age. I just surrendered to the gospel call upon my life. Some church in a country church in Baghdad, Kentucky heard that I had surrendered to preach and so they asked me, would you wanna come and preach? And I said, absolutely. I don't know what I'm gonna say, but absolutely I'll preach. I think my sermon that night was probably about 12 minutes long. Don't anybody amen that. But I think it was about 12 minutes in length. Before the service, before the sermon, there was a lady, an elderly lady, who pulled me aside. And this is the conversation that she had with me. Keep in mind, I'm a 17-year-old teenage punk, really, who uh, just surrendered to the gospel call. She asked me, she said, uh, do you have the anointing? 
And I said, ma'am, I don't know, but I sure want it. I mean, I, I want to be an anointed preacher. So I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm interested. And she said, well, this anointing that I'm talking about is the baptism of the Spirit. Have you been baptized in the Spirit? Well, ma'am, I don't know. I was baptized in a baptistry. I was baptized in water. I was baptized at the age of seven. If that's what you're talking about, about baptism in the Spirit, then check the box. I've done it. I've been baptized when I got saved. She said, oh, honey, that's not what I'm talking about. She said, what I'm talking about is being baptized in the Spirit so that you'll have the anointing. And every preacher needs the anointing. Don't you want the anointing? Yes, ma'am, I want the anointing. Well, in order for you to get the anointing, you got to be baptized by the Spirit. And the evidence you've been baptized by the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. I'm a 17-year-old teenager. I never heard of speaking in tongues. I thought to myself and I said to her, ma'am, uh, this tongue thing that you're talking about, I have no idea what you mean. And in fact, uh, you're making me a little bit uncomfortable because you're getting closer to me. And the closer you get to me, the further I back up. So, Meemaw, what in the world are you talking about when it comes to tongues? So, she says, all right, I'm talking about. Uh, she, she proceeded to try to educate my ignorance. And single-handedly, she wanted me uh, to have the baptism of the Spirit. And she was going to accomplish this. And I was going to start speaking in tongues. And that would be evidence that I was going to be an anointed preacher. Not just on that night, but every night. I was going to be able to stand and speak and be an anointed preacher of the gospel. And I was like, okay. And so she started talking. And brothers and sisters, she started saying things I ain't never heard before. She was speaking in a language I did not understand. I thought, you know what? This is strange. This is a little bit weird. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I start looking around. There are other people in that church. And they're looking at me, but ain't none of them going to help me. They're watching her pray over me. And as she begins to pray in the spirit, she begins to speak in tongues. And they can tell I'm a little uncomfortable. And, and I, I look at them and they look at me, but they don't do anything. They don't come to help. They don't come to intervene. They don't come to do anything. And so I stand there. She wants me to start speaking in tongues. I can't. I don't. I never have. I, I just, I never have done that. And so I wasn't going to make it up. I wasn't going to just try to imitate her. So I just stood there and stared at her. And the longer I stared at her, the more she prayed and the louder she got, the more animated she became. And eventually she just got worn slap out. And she looked at me. And she said, well, it's clear. You might be a preacher, but you ain't never going to have the anointing. Don't anybody say amen. <laughs> You're going to be a preacher of the gospel, but you ain't going to have the anointing. And I said, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about, but I don't know what you just did. And I can't do what you just did. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to go preach what I have to preach. Now, since then, I learned that she was speaking in her prayer language. She was speaking in tongues. It was a gift that she had from the Spirit of the Lord. Um, uh, my theology teaches me that, uh, that speaking in tongues is not necessary for the Spirit to fall on any person. The Spirit falls on every person who believes at the moment of faith, at the moment of belief. We are sealed in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. We are sealed in our salvation by the power of the Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now Paul does give instructions on those who have received this gift of the speaking in tongues and how to use it. I don't think that lady was using it in a proper way in that very public forum but regardless she was trying to do that and in that moment I actually thought to myself as I left the conversation she's got something I don't got she's better than me and what Paul is telling the Colossian church is don't let anybody 
try to disqualify you based on a lack of observable obedience to a list of man-made rules of do's and don'ts. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that if you're a super saint, you're going to speak in a foreign, not a, a unrecognizable language. I remember that as a young pastor, there was a particular man who was well-respected in the church and in the community. And uh, I, I'm in my mid-20s, right? Uh, I don't know much now. I knew nothing then about what it meant to be a pastor. Um, and so I remember that this particular man would come up to me on a, on a regular basis uh, a, a few times. And he would say, uh, preacher, now God told me something to tell you. And uh, I'm going to tell you when you're ready. I got to be honest, as a young preacher, that kind of rocked me a little bit. Because I thought to myself, how are we going to know if I'm ready? Is God going to tell you? Is God going to tell me? Is God going to tell us? Is it going to be this day? Is it going to be next week? Will it be next year? When is God going to make me ready? How am I going to know that I'm ready? I mean, you've got something that God has said that he needs to, that, that you need to tell me. And so, so I, I, if, if you need to tell me, then I need to know it. So, so what is it? And I, I, I would follow him around sometimes and I would think, is, is, am I ready? Is, is now the time? Am I ready? Is now the time? And you know what? Apparently I never was ready. <laughs> Apparently I never was ready because he never really followed through. But it was kind of like that, that spiritual carrot that was dangling in front of me that he said, hey, I, I'm really close to God. I'm real spiritual. And God told me something that clearly he didn't tell you. And you need to know this, not just for your life and your family, but also for the work of the church. And so, so I need to tell you what God told me. And I'll tell you what God told me when you're ready. Oh, okay. And I always wondered, how, do I, how am I going to know if I'm ready or not? I remember... Uh, about the last time he did that, um, I, I really had, had kind of had it up to here because it, it really kind of gnawed at me. And so eventually I just told him something like this. I called him by name and I said, brother, uh, if God has given you something to tell me that's contrary to his word, I don't want to hear it. And if God has told you something to tell me that I can find in his scripture, Stop playing games with me and just give me the book, the chapter, and the verse. Uh, friends, that was the last time we had a conversation about that. <laughs> that may have been why he left the church. I don't quite know. But it was like this, this mysticism, this, this aura of super spirituality that somehow um, he had it and I didn't. And, and listen, I'm not saying that I'm not able to be instructed because if, if God clearly tells you something, then I do want you to tell me. But, but he, it was almost as if he was hanging it over my head, like, like he was so much more spiritual than anybody else. Paul is telling the church, hey, listen, uh, don't let anybody who delights in false humility or the worship of something other than Jesus strive to disqualify you. Uh, don't, don't fall prey to mysticism. The greatest mystery of the cosmos is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It don't get no better than that. I know it's bad grammar, but it's great theology. It don't get no better than that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, beware of legalism, beware of mysticism, but also beware of self-denial, verses 20 to 23. Beware of self-denial. Now, at first, this sounds very 
biblical, doesn't it? It sounds like the gospel. The gospel calls us to deny self. But Paul is warning the church, beware of self-denial. Certainly, we need to deny ourselves. We need to deny ourselves of sin. We need to deny ourselves of worldliness. We need to deny ourselves of the pursuit of the things of, of this world. Some of us would do well to deny ourselves from the lunch buffet, <laughs> to deny ourselves from activities on Friday night, to deny ourselves from a constant gossip fest called social media. We may do well to kind of deny ourselves of some of those things. But what the Gnostics were doing is they were coming in and they were saying, listen, if you really want to know God, if you want to be close to him, if you want to be a super saint in the kingdom of God, the way you get there is excessive denial. You just excessively deny the pleasures of life. The pleasures, by the way, which are God-given and God-ordained. I'm not talking about sin here. It's just the excessive denial. Because they said that in order for your soul to be sanctified, your body must be disciplined. So don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. They would say all these things about excessive denial. And Paul says this message of self-denial, they're telling you this, communicating that somehow if you deny self, that it will, it will suppress your appetites and you will be able to hear more clearly from God. But the reality of what happens is the opposite. It doesn't suppress it, it intensifies it. Paul says it does nothing to subdue your indulgences. Now, you think about church history. There have been a lot of groups that have tried to uh, peddle this message, right? A lot of groups of people that have said, if you just excessively deny yourself, then you'll be holier. So deny yourself of marriage. Deny yourself of sex. Deny yourself of parenthood. Deny yourself of food. Deny yourself of sleep. Deny yourself of other pleasures that God gives. Now, when I say deny yourself, clearly God gives parameters on all those things, and we would do well to obey those parameters, but excessive denial says, listen, even for a married couple, no sex, no parenting. Even for those uh, who, uh, who, who can eat, don't eat, uh, uh, don't sleep, uh, all this excessive stuff, because if you excessively deny yourself, you'll be closer to God. And Paul, in so many words, is saying, listen, if you want freedom, it's not in self-denial. Freedom is in total surrender to the Savior. If you want to be free, totally surrender yourself to Christ. Because Christ plus nothing equals everything that you need. If, if you, listen, there's a place for the law and obedience to it. There's a place uh, for proper eating and drinking. There's a place for, uh, for, for how you uh, organize your calendar. There's something to be said about knowing God deeply and great mysticism, but there's nothing greater than Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there's something to be said about self-denial. There's a place and a portion for it in your life, but it doesn't mean that if you excessively deny yourself that somehow you'll automatically be close to God. If you want to be close to God, just surrender yourself to Jesus. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. So you follow the Lord not out of legalism, but out of love. That's liberating, friends. You don't follow Jesus just to 
dot every I and cross every T. You don't, you don't, you don't follow Jesus just saying, you know what, I've just got to perfectly pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, you don't follow Jesus out of legalism, man-made rules of lists and do's and don'ts. You follow him out of love. That's liberating. And if you want to have a mystical relationship with Christ, just have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus will take you on a faith journey that will blow your socks off. You just follow Christ. You just do your best to live for the one that lives inside of you. Let him stick out. And it will be masterful and mystical. And you want to be free? Freedom comes not from self-denial. Freedom comes from surrendering yourself to the Savior. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's not that these other things are bad things. They're just terrible saving things. These other things can't save you. The only thing that saves you is your trust in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. So do you trust him? That's the question. I'm about to take my seat, but do you trust him? Have you trusted him as your sole sufficient savior? Do you trust him that he died on the cross for all your sins. They were nailed to the tree. He was buried in the grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Do you trust him? If you never have, today can be the day of salvation. If you've never trusted this Jesus, as Paul writes in Colossians, this one who is the image of the invisible God, if you've never trusted this Jesus, a creator of all things, this Jesus who holds all things together, this Jesus who's the firstborn of resurrection, this Je if you've never trusted this Jesus, today can be the day of your salvation. I can't think of a better day than today for you to place your explicit trust and faith in Christ. If you're here today and you are a believer and you've already trusted Jesus, you can even tell me the date and time that it happened. You know vividly that moment when you went from no faith to faith, from death into life. Let me ask you, if Jesus plus nothing is all that you need, don't you think Jesus plus nothing is all that everybody else needs that you meet? Your neighbors, your coworkers, your sons, your daughters, your spouse? your friends, your classmates, your teammates. If Jesus is all that you need, I promise you it's all that they need. Stop being quiet about it. Stop being muted about the Messiah. Maybe you need to come today and say, Lord Jesus, help me. I focus more on the food I eat than proclaiming that you're the bread of life. I focus more on uh, the calendar that I keep instead of realizing you're the Lord of all time. I focus more on the stuff that I do instead of the Savior that I serve. So help me, Lord, this week to tell somebody about you. And maybe, maybe today before you leave, you just need to come to the altar and pray. If you're a believer, we've got to talk about this sufficiency of Jesus to others. Maybe you're here today and you need a church home. This is a great place to come. Plot, plant, serve, and settle. Just come and serve Christ here. 
whatever the Spirit of God is leading you to do in this very moment, won't you follow in obedience? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this day. We gave you this invitation. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that your scripture was clearly communicated. We pray that we are more dependent upon you than ever before. And we pray that you'll be honored and glorified. So Lord, uh, have your way in this invitation. Encourage us, convict us, help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.